Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Paul Wickers, founder and CEO of Hug.me. So at the start, any startup idea, especially if it's novel, is a great big bag of all of the things that are likely to go wrong, because in all likelihood, it won't it won't be a success. It's, it's just statistically unlikely for you to actually succeed. So on day one, you've got a great big bag of problems that you're gonna to have to overcome. And your job over time is to make that bag lighter before you take it to a, an investor. Because the more of those those risks you've gotten rid of and you've got a lighter bag when you go forward to raise the next round of money, yeah. the better your proposition is because you've done more to prove it. Now, what I spent was too long on like creating the first product and not enough time just knocking over those barriers. Actually, because I underestimated, I was confident that the idea would work and I didn't realize how hard product market fit is. Now, product market fit is the thing that kills most businesses. This is Paul. He spent 14 years in the structured finance team at RBS and then later Santander. During this time, he came to study the social economics of the greeting card industry. He realized that the success of physically sending a greeting card in the offline world had never been achieved in the online world. And this helped him to develop the insights that the principles of giving and receiving emotionally impactful gifts could be applied in a digital way. It just had to be done in a different way. And this became the launch of Hug in 2015. Paul built the platform in his spare time left his job in 2016 and the platform first launched in July 2017. But the journey of his company wasn't an instant success from the start. And it's the story of business resilience that really caught my attention and inspired me to invite Paul to my podcast. Listening to this interview will feel like watching a movie trailer unfold. We explore the lessons that Paul learned as he took his product to market, initially towards consumers, later towards business to business. We discuss the importance of product market fit. We discuss his lessons learned when it comes to allocating funding to the right levers in the business. We go through what happened when COVID hit the world, the rationalization that unfolded, the hibernation, the rebirth, and finally, how sheer perseverance and focusing on the problem, not the product, helped him succeed. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that if you can create a constant feeling of genuine urgency around the mission, you get the best out of people longer term. Secondly, that your company will become stronger by being plain honest about what's the real situation in a crisis situation. It helps to create great bonding. Thirdly, that nothing is as bad or good as it first seems. And fourthly, that when one thing goes away, other things will open up. So focus on the positive things that you can do rather than negative things. 
Well, hi, Paul. Thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on my podcast. No problem. Very happy that you invited me. Yeah, I mean, it was by the story that was that I was told by someone that I met on Lunch Club, Liz from Kindred, when I told her about my second book that I'm writing. It's all about remarkable resilience. I asked her whether she knew any entrepreneurs out there that had a fascinating story to tell about, you know, what happened through the last 20 months and how they changed and how they pivoted and how they came out stronger from it. So that, that's how this is all starting. Before we start and talk about your company, Hug, a little bit about you. Like if you had to describe yourself in two or three words, words would you use to characterize yourself? Oh, okay. So in two or three words, I would say ambitious dad. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, two or three words. I would say I was an ambitious devoted dad all right there's a couple of things here that that is always good to see the ambitious part around you know the entrepreneurship devoted of course kind of the persistence to to keep things going and i'm really eager to to hear your story and of course that which is about caring for the family and making sure that you got yeah you focus on the right things so i love that the company hug officially came to market around 2017 if i'm correct yeah, that's right. We came to market initially as a B2C gifting app back in 2017. So what was the big idea that you that, that sort of kind of sparked the idea to start a company? Yeah, so the big idea was, it's rare that it's like this, but it was in my case, a little bit of a light bulb moment. But it was born out of quite a boring situation in my old career as a banker. So I was a leveraged finance banker for over a decade. And most people don't know what that means. In fact, I'm pretty sure my parents still didn't know what that meant after a decade of doing it. It meant that I funded, I did the big loans that I would arrange the big loans that would fund the management buyout or an IPO or a company buying another company. So mergers and acquisitions activity. Yeah. And I, one of the deals that I worked on was the IPO of a greeting card retailer, a very large one in, in the UK. And we were doing a loan for that deal, but the process, really the process of arranging loans is about assessing risk because a loan, the loan part of the capital structure is the thing that has capped upside and uncapped downside, whereas the equity has uncapped upside and capped downside. So you're really assessing risk and what you're trying to figure out is, will that money come back in its entirety or not. That's it. Yeah. Will you get your principal and interest or will you lose will you lose a portion of that or all of that cash? And I was director, so that means that my reputation, my performance, my everything is on the line. My personal PL is on the line if it goes wrong. So you think very deeply about whether it will work or won't work and you go into all of the risks associated with it. Now, there was a, a weird thing now, it actually ended up being quite a no-brainer as loans, leverage finance loans go, because it was such a strong company. And the reason it was a strong company was because that the demand for it, not, notwithstanding the fact that it had a great competitive position, was that the underlying reason for the existence of greeting cards, and, and in particular in their physical form, was because the act of sending a greeting card is actually baked into a, an element of psychology that's as old as humans are, which and it's all around thoughtfulness or the one person's expression of thoughtfulness towards another. So yeah. it didn't matter what level of technical disruption or digital disruption you put over the top of that, 
the underlying sentiment was going to take a lot longer than digital transformation would ever break down. And that's why digitally nobody had ever made the e-greeting card work. They still haven't. We've got things like Moonpig now, which has made more of a dent on the market, but that's still causing a physical card to get sent. It's just a little bit easier to do it and make it personal. But what I started to think was there still would be digital disruption in that area and maybe it would come in a different form. So I started to think about what might be the same sort of price point but would still feel quite a nice kind of meaningful thing to do. And the very simple premise that actually turned out to be fiendishly complicated to actually achieve, but the simple premise of what if you could buy somebody a coffee from their favorite coffee shop and send that to them so that they could digitally redeem it immediately. And that would be about the same price. It would be thoughtful and it would be a meaningful replacement for in our digital world for a greeting card. And that's where it all started. The idea then came for an app that could do that, an app that could convey a digital redeemable gift, often edible for the real world. Now, in order to do that, you have to have the tech, but you also have to have a network of places where you can redeem it, a safe method for redemption to occur, all the fraud nonsense around it. And it turned out to be a fiendishly complicated thing to do. But I had that thought whilst writing that deal and I started working on it in my spare time and didn't actually just didn't stop until I was able to leave that job a year later with enough there to give me the security that I needed to be able to move out of that finance world and into the startup world. Fascinating. I mean, talking about someone that has been in M&A and lending and understanding upsides and downsides and risk assessments, you must have been like very strong feeling that this was going to be a, a huge success. So yes. interesting, yeah. Yes. Well, the overwhelming feeling I had was that there were the risks that actually didn't make sense. I, I had a good salary. I had a mortgage. I had security. I, I had a very good reputation internally where I was. And I had a lot of friends and I respected the people I worked for. And I actually loved the job that I had and the job that I left. But the only risk that I couldn't deal with was just the risk of being old someday, looking back on my life and wishing that I'd given it a try. And the and that risk of regret, future regret, you do, you tend to like regret the things that you didn't do rather than the things that you did do. I think in most circumstances, I can think of a few people that would have preferred to have not done some things that they've done. But I, yes, but I think the risk of regret for me was just the bigger one, the more overwhelming one and the one that I couldn't deal with. So that was why I went ahead and did it. And it would be fair to say that I estimated it to be a tough ride, but I massively underestimated how tough it would be. Tell me, like, what happened? Well, we got off to a pretty good start, actually. So we had we had early investors that were willing to take a very early risk, which meant that we could get the tech built. And by getting the tech built, it meant that we could have a, a pretty decent, you know, a pretty decent version of an app before we tried to go out to market and get supply. Now, I now know that that's completely the wrong way to do it, and I wouldn't start the next business in any way the same way that I'd started the first. But you make these new mistakes, and you learn by doing, don't you? So we were able to have the technology built out of house initially. And then when we launched the product, we initially launched in Bristol and we had 20, we convinced 20 coffee shops to be redemption locations. 
And so we launched, and we knew this when we launched, but we knew that people would use it, but very quickly run out of what they can do with it. It's like, you know, Uber's kind of helpful if you can get a car, but as soon as you, you know, as soon as there are too many users there and there's only one car in your city, no, it's it's useless. So with a marketplace, you have to be able to build up the supply as the demand grows. And we had a horrible geography problem in that we could get users in Bristol to download the app, but they had to want to send one thing to somebody also in Bristol. And they didn't. They wanted to send other things to people in London, Newcastle and Glasgow. So what we did is we used that first period as a proof of concept. It did prove the concept. We had adequate data to then go ahead and raise venture capital. And I was able to raise venture capital from Kindred, and that ultimately is where our intro came from. And they've continued to be our lead investor ever since. And that was back in January 2019. January, yeah. Yeah, like, let me pause here because you said this is we, we made some mistakes and we would never do it again. And what would you do different next time if you start a company? Would you go, for example, first do all the assessments and don't do any tech at all? What I did was part of it was about understanding technology a lot better now. And part of it was about understanding not lean startup methodologies per se, but that you don't have to have advanced things quite so far as you think to be able to prove the next. So what you're always trying to do is prove the next stage. So at the start, any startup idea, especially if it's novel, is a great big bag of all of the things that are likely to go wrong, because in all likelihood, it won't it won't be a success. It's, it's just statistically unlikely for you to actually succeed. So on day one, you've got a great big bag of problems that you're going to have to overcome. And your job over time is to make that bag lighter before you take it to a, an investor. Because the more of those, those risks you've gotten rid of and you've got a lighter bag when you go forward to raise the next round of money, yeah. the better your proposition is because you've done more to prove it. Now, what I spent was too long on like creating the first product and not enough time just knocking over those barriers, actually, because I underestimated. I was confident that the idea would work and I didn't realize how hard product market fit is. Now, product market fit is the thing that kills most businesses. I'd never heard of it until we were wrestling with not quite having it and trying to work out what it was that we didn't have. It turned out we didn't have product market fit. So what we could have done was we could have, there were a lot of things that we could have solved earlier. And then there were a lot. The other thing that I would change definitely is I would change. There were a lot of occasions where I knew that something wasn't right. And it could be, it could be anything, any, any element could be related to products, could be related to supply, it could be related to people. And you know that they're not right and you don't deal with them fast enough because you think that they're going to change, but they never do. Your gut instinct is almost never wrong. And ignoring it is the biggest problem I've had is just ignoring what my gut was telling me in favor of advice that I'd got or in favor of something that I'd read where my gut always turned out to be right. And I would say that that's the biggest piece of advice I give to other people is just to not ignore when their gut is telling them that something's not right. So those would be the things that I would change, would be less time worrying about the product and more time worrying about the problem. Very good, wise advice. So January 2019, things start to, you know, you start to get a feeling about how this, how this could pan out. What happened then? Yeah, so in Jan 19, so we'd got, we'd got good data at that point. 
by that point, we'd actually proven a few of those things. And that's, that's yeah. why we started to proceed quite nicely. We raised the venture capital and that meant that we could actually grow a proper team for the first time. Because at that stage, there were still only, there were only just three of us at that point. Yeah. So we raised 1.5 million additional funding at that point. And we, 1.5 million roughly translates into, you can hire about a dozen people and have 18 months to 24 months of runway to prove yourselves. So we raised 1.5 million, hired a team and set about trying to launch the product into London, which meant that we needed a lot more places. So we were pretty good on the supply side. We were able to get lots and lots of new locations live. We ended up with over a hundred ready to go live by the time we started to launch into London, but it taken us, took us about 10 months to do that process, to hire a team, to get the product ready, to do the supply side of it. Actually, there's quite a long burn time to do that. Yeah, That took us about 10 months. Then we launched into London and it, it was pretty successful, but we didn't get, we didn't get everything right on the product side at all. We didn't iterate well against what we needed. So we, we know we shipped a lot of product changes, but we didn't ship them in the right direction. So what, we found was that we went into, sorry, it was 2018 when we raised the money. By the end of 2018, we then launched into London. And then at the start of coming, in, coming into 2019, we started to realize that we were, we'd actually hired a slightly bigger team than we'd anticipated. And we'd started to get users, but we had poor, really poor repeat and activation use and, and repeat use. Yeah. So we'd get people to download the app but we couldn't get them to use it very much. It's like one um, time and then like, like forget about it again. Yeah, exactly. Very poor active use versus the you know vanity numbers of app downloads. Put yourself in that trap as any founder and you, we acknowledge yeah. that, but if you ever put yourself in the trap of exploring some vanity metric and not actually measuring proper usage and things that really matter, you're just causing yourself a problem and you will get found out. Yeah. We did recognize this problem, but we just couldn't fix it. We just could not get get the product to where we needed it to be. So, but one spark we did find in amongst all of this was that anyone who did use the product heavily were using it for business use. They were using it typically uh-huh. to send items to teams. So it was one thing that we'd done by accident was we'd, we'd kind of hit that mark. Now we planned to hit a B2B market, but we hadn't planned for the app to be the product that they would use yeah. now they were u- so they were using this smartphone app and we detected this so but what we did is we managed to just about hack our way to enough usage that was it enabled us to convince our first large and national chain to come on board and that was cafe nero by the time cafe nero came on board that meant that our number of locations could be sort of national True. like it's a large chain but Still, the vast majority of the population doesn't live anywhere near one. But it was national enough that we could do B2B. B2B really needed national supply. Exactly. So at that point, that was spring 2019. And we decided to, first, we tried to do B2B and B2C at the same time. But fundamentally, we needed more than 20 people to do that. And we did not have the capital base to do it. So we, at that point, decided to, rationalized down by about half the company to concentrate on b2b instead yeah we did that in summer 2019 it was a really painful decision but it ended up being the only decision that we could really make and, and the right one 
So we then, into late 19, we started to really iterate on the B2B idea. We got our first B2B dedicated web app product out of the door. We started increase, we carried on increasing our supply. And we were in a decent state, actually. We'd extended our seed round by that point. We were in a good state and we were starting to really find some product market fit in B2B. We had a really good pipeline as well, but it was mostly larger businesses with long sales cycles, enterprise level sales cycles. Exactly, so we, yeah. we'd cracked a few things, but we then ended up in sort of enterprise sales cycles. So we found ourselves with other problems. We went from, you know, we went to a different type of problem at this point. But we started to solve that. We came into 2020 with, you know, good pipeline, good prospects. We'd raised money internally. We were about to raise some more money externally as well to, to, to close out the seed extension as well. Yeah. And then coronavirus. Exactly. I was just about to say it. And then it yeah, happened. it was just the worst possible time. So at that point, we had 1,300 locations where you could collect one of our products. We had another 2,000 about to go live. We felt like we cracked it. Money was coming in. And then COVID just came. There was just this weekend oh where, yeah, there was just this weekend where we were thinking, oh, finally, after all of that adversity and everything, finally, we're getting there. And then bang, just that just hit the us. The whole market, your national coverage all died in one Every in single one thing moment. that we sold, every single thing that we sold was closed. And, exactly. and the funding we were about to land, the, re- the rest of the funding we were about to land went away. And as a result, we had incredibly low runway. Exactly. So, 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 so what did you do? I mean, hitting that moment, like adversity after adversity, which had nothing to do, of course, with the global pandemic. And then you get that thing on top of that, where nobody knows where things are going. Yeah, exactly. So, how, what I mean, how did you take me through that moment and, and what you did with your management team? Well, that previous set of kind of issues we'd managed to work through as a team. And it was all standard startup stuff. But COVID... You know, so there were some reference points to go to. There were some learnings, but COVID was just a whole other set of just everything was a variable. So we had such short runway that we had to immediately make redundancies. There was just nothing else that we could do. Now I'll come back to that in a minute because it's important, but there was nothing else that we could do. We had to act so fast that we'd done it even before the furlough scheme was announced on the Friday. Oof. But we then... So we made that announcement on the Thursday. And the reason was that we just needed to take loads of cost out. So through a process of some people voluntarily reduced the amount of hours they would work because they would be doing childcare or just because they were help, wanting to be helpful. You know, we did what we could to salaries. We did what we could to headcount. And we got rid of the office spaces that we worked out of. Yeah. And over a 48-hour period, that meant that we cut the cost base of the business by about 70%. Now, that still didn't give us much runway. <laughs> it just gave us more runway than we already had, but didn't give us yeah, a great... Yeah, it wasn't. Of course, not, not a lot you can free up. Yeah, it was so difficult. We would literally move into docks on more funding. So we kept the cost base we had and, yeah, it just it was like the worst possible situation. So... We took That's one thing. You can cut costs until you're as lean as a piece of paper. But what you needed was upside. Well, yeah, everything was just torn up. So it almost didn't matter what we cut costs to. Everything was still torn up anyway. We had nothing, yeah. we had nothing at that point. You know, and I couldn't rationalize it down to just me because I don't know how to write code. You know, I didn't know how to do a ton of the other things that we needed to do. So that wasn't even an option either. I couldn't say, let's just 
I'll just restart this at some other point and I'm going to hibernate now. It just wasn't an issue, wasn't something that we could do. But we did call it a hibernation. We said we actually just, I think we just need to ride this out initially. Our assessment was until things open again, really not sure what we can do. Now we very quickly came up with something that we could do, but that was, you know, it felt very dire. I think yeah. that's my attempt at describing where we thought we were. So what did we do? We took that 70% of the cost out. So we announced redundancies on the Thursday and then we held off the paperwork because it got leaked into the press on the Friday morning that there was going to be a big announcement on job protection. And that didn't happen all day until five, six o'clock when Rishi Sunak got behind the podium and started to describe a scheme that no one had heard of and furlough words that nobody had ever heard before. It's unbelievable. It's like almost in being in a movie, like hour after hour after hour. It was. So that was the kind of situation on the cost side. And now by the end of that Friday, though, we'd heard about what the furlough scheme was. And I took the weekend to consider what it meant and actually concluded that where our cash flow was, it was too tight for us to be able to wait for any furlough scheme to actually get set up and put in place and funded. Mm-hmm. And it would mean having to cut everybody's salaries because we wouldn't be able to do the top-up element of it. So as a result, we actually decided at that point to proceed with the redundancies that we'd had because we felt like it was that or everyone would lose their job and we didn't have a chance to save it. But in that same week, when we were cutting those costs, one of our team members happened to have lunch with his brother or a dinner with his brother who works in a school. And his, his brother had spent all day going around supermarkets and trying to buy gift cards. And the reason was because when schools were closing, there were a whole load of children, 1.7 million of them, in fact, who get funded a free school meal. So it's a, it's a hot meal made at the school or at the caterers and catered at school and provided to those kids. There's an alarmingly high percentage of those 1.7 million children that unfortunately rely on that meal as their main source of nutrition and their only source of hot food. So schools knew this. I was not aware of this. I can't believe that that is the case in this country, but it, it is. I'm now very, very aware of it. But what happened was schools who were acutely aware of this were panicking like crazy knowing they were going to get closed and that those kids would end up in a situation of horrible food poverty so they were raiding their own budgets to spend as much money as they could to get their hands on as many supermarket grocery gift cards as they could to give to the parents just to tide them over before maybe some national scheme or some sort of strategy was put in place yes so we learned about all this and we heard that that all the supermarket gift cards have basically been ripped off the shelves. They were none left because all the schools were doing the same things. And we realized that our platform could deliver this service at scale to schools because the process of business buying 100 gifts for 100 staff members is the same as a, as a company, as a school, sorry, buying 100 gift cards to send to 100 parents. So in that week where we're having to rationalize half the business, the other half of the business who were staying there were completely transforming what we did to do this new thing. And we were trying to drum up interest and support and get the word out that we could do this. So we were really, really busy changing the tone of voice of the product and onboarding all of the supermarkets and change and doing what we could to make the platform fit for purpose for that. And we managed to do it inside of a week. 
and get that ready and start servicing schools. So we used our platform for something that we'd never considered before and that didn't exist before. And we started helping schools with that. So that was great. That gave us something new to focus on. And we were able to give our platform away for free to all of the schools and whoever else wanted to use it, but charge the supermarkets a tiny bit so that we would be able to make a, an element of revenue from it as well to keep enough to keep the lights on. And wow. so that worked for all parties involved, but three days, two or three days after we launched that, the government announced that they'd been working for the last six weeks or so on a national scheme to do that. But they used a supplier called Eden Red because they had to vary an existing contract in order to avoid a lengthy OGU EU procurement process that they otherwise would have to go through. Sure, exactly. So after two or three days, this thing that we built was then not needed anymore. So we pointed all of our customers over to there and we were kind of back to the drawing board. But because of everything that we'd done and we'd managed to drum up some press, the British Red Cross got in touch with us and the British Red Cross wanted to figure out a way where their volunteers could go shopping for people who were isolating at home. You remember right back in the start of the pandemic, you couldn't get a supermarket delivery slot for love, no money. And people who were isolating were rightly terrified of leaving the house. Exactly. And some of them didn't have people to go shopping for them. So the British Red Cross could step up with 30,000 volunteers and another 70,000 relief volunteers and do it, but they didn't have any safe way for someone at home to set a shopping list and pay for it. And the transfer of ownership of that cash or near cash would go to somebody to be dispatched, the Red Cross volunteer to be dispatched, and then the money got back with full trace of ownership. That was just not something that they could do. They actually emailed us, or what did they do? They, they might have even got in touch via Twitter. It was ridiculous sliding moments, sliding doors moment, the way they got in touch with us. One of the staff members spotted it, I emailed the person, didn't hear back from him for, for two days. And we were thinking, is this scam? <laughs> we're, we're sure we could do it. Was it scam? Was it real? Did they need us? We were delighted to try and help the Red Cross. We had no idea what it would turn into but we, or what they needed. But it turned out I just typoed his email address in a rush. So I never got a bounce back. So again, it's just one of those things where like a business is a series of, and some of the elements are a bit of luck. On that day, we got some luck that they contacted us and then I managed to type out his email address and we didn't hear from them for two days. And it was only because one of my colleagues checked and said, oh, actually, I think you typed out his email address that we ended up working with the British Red Cross. So we spoke to them, we got their requirements. We were able to build that entire thing for them in about 12 hours. Wow. And I mean, I can imagine that moment where you were just looking at your email, like, why, why is nobody returning this? Yeah, exactly. We're thinking we're, we'd love to help. We At that point, you'll remember the whole country, the whole world was in this like exactly. wartime spirit. You wanted to do anything you yeah. could to help. We were sitting there with a technology platform that was useless otherwise for a while. Exactly. And we just wanted to help. We wanted to work with the British Red Cross. We wanted to be busy. <laughs> we didn't want to be doing nothing. And anyway, long story short, we ended up signing a, a, an agreement to work with them. And off the back of all of that kind of pivoting, changing, looking for things that we could do, helping our existing current lead investor and one of the angels as well. 
they just came back and they said, look, fair enough. To be fair, you were probably dead there. But that was quite <laughs> that was quite a set of decisions that you took as a business there. Very impressive. Here's 12 months of runway. And they, they, they filled the round we would have otherwise raised. Fantastic. And that's why, how we survived initially. Now, there's a lot more to that story, but I'll pause for breath for a minute. <laughs> well, I mean, just a roller coaster. I mean, it's, uh, you can feel it when, you, when you're talking about it. It's a great story about resilience. And yeah, I mean, things that you can see coming, maybe you can't see coming, things that you do wrong yourself, things that are taken away from you. So what has been the biggest lesson for you in this whole, in this whole schema? I mean, well, in and amongst it all, I've actually only told you half the story at this point. But in and amongst it all, the biggest lesson we've learned is that when your back is up against the wall, that's when you do your most creative work. So if you, inside of a, a business, can create a constant feeling without overwhelming people with pressure, but if you can create a constant feeling of mission and drive and goals and targets and, you know, urgency you're pretty likely to get the best out of people in the longer term but it's pretty hard to fake it wasn't hard to fake in the end of april sorry end of march last year true that was all very real but that that's it you know i knew that anyway but i saw it in action yeah let me make a small interruption here paul just made a critical remark that's the essential lesson to embrace for any software business to create a constant feeling of mission, drive, and urgency. It's in the combination of that where magic happens. Mission is about the clarity around the change that you seek to create, something that you want to see happening, even if you're not part of it yourself. Drive is about falling in love with the problem, not the product, and looking at it from the outside in, i.e. from the perspective of the people that you seek to serve. And lastly, urgency. That's about creating a clear understanding what's at stake if you don't act on it. And this is a trait that remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence and then use that focus to create something valuable and desirable. And you can master these traits as well. I have various options for you to start. Just go to valueinspiration.com and learn about the masterminds and work streams to fast track the growth of your software company. Alternatively, just grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect, from that same website. Back to the interview. So, hi, you, you, you're, reaching, or you're, you're touching upon a couple of very important things, which I, I keep hearing back. It starts with having something to fight for that we all believe in, right? Mission. Yeah. And another thing that I heard continuously over the story, the, the conversations that I've held around the resilience topic is the honesty, the transparency with people. Okay, maybe we might not have all the, all the answers, but this is how we are standing for, and we have to do this together. That's right. And I can't take the credit for that. It was actually a founder friend of mine. When we were working, when we were getting sort of low on runway right at the end of 2019, going into 2020, having to raise the rest, you know, having to extend our seed round, hitting product market fit, but battling with long sales cycles and thinking... You know, currently we're playing chicken with our runway versus whether this traction will come through in time. The varying bits of wisdom as to how you're supposed to go about those sorts of situations. One of them is you don't want to panic people or you don't want to give people the impression that 
they're in any sort of peril because they might all leave and then you definitely fail. That's one school of thought. And I'm sure there are situations where that is the case. A founder friend of mine had said that when he was in a similar friend position, he'd found that if you instead went the other way and told everyone absolutely everything and they knew what was coming and what you were working for and what you needed to hit to, to achieve it, you'll probably find if you've got the right people that they won't actually leave, True. that they will stay and that they will just help you to get through it. It goes uh, back to this to your original idea about kind of why people gift things, why people send gift cards because they care. Yeah, they want exactly, they want yeah. to do good and they want to kind of make that difference to other people. Yeah, In exactly. Case, it's they, like they care exactly. They care about this. They when adversity is being shared amongst a team of people and you're working to get out of it, that can be really rewarding. It's not to say people necessarily enjoy being in that situation, but it's a situation of sort of great bonding. So that's what I did in this situation. That's what it's the, it's the first time we'd, we'd had situations before in the business where we'd, you know, not been where we should be and had to make some changes. But this was the first situation where you could kind of see a wall coming in the future. And so I took that route with it, which was to just say, look, this is exactly where we're at. This is the cash balance. This is what we need to do. I need to raise money. You all need to get traction. We need more supply, blah, 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 blah. And they did. They just knuckled down, got on with it. So when coronavirus came along, they were completely aware of the situation we were in. And everyone was great about leaving. Now, because we then went through that cycle over three, four weeks of we're dead. Oh, here's a thing we can do. That's gone away. But British Red Cross and then, you know, some great activity off the back of that and then raising money again and we were safe. We then went back to everybody that we'd made redundant and rehired, furloughed and backdated their pay. So they actually never ended up with a pay gap in the end. They ended up with a pay cut because of the furlough scheme, but we were able to keep them at least in income for a period of time. So the first thing we did was that, was just get them all back on the payroll. Now, we didn't know whether we'd ever get to the point where we could rehire them fully and bring them off the furlough scheme. That was, we, we knew we'd do everything we possibly could to make that happen. And again, we just gave people the heads up. We're rehiring you and furloughing you. We'll do everything that we possibly can to do this, but it might not work. So go forward with your eyes open. So that was a good, you know, we they looked after us. We looked after them later on. And some of those people have now, even though they went off and got other jobs in most cases, some of them have actually come back working for us later on. That's what's happening. You know, you can just create a stronger culture out of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you can come out with a much better, you know, well, we've come out with a much better business now because what we then went on to do was this national scheme took over for free school meals provision. But because we'd created this vouchering system and then started working with the British Red Cross, it turned out that our that using grocery vouchers where you can give the recipient the choice of different grocery brands to go to is actually a really dignified way of replacing food aid that would have been in the form of food parcels. It turns out that there's a huge amount of money spent on that, which is better spent on something else that replaces that. So the British Red Cross went on to use our product actually as a modern day food parcel equivalent. And now we have a ton of local authorities who do the same 
they distribute a form of welfare in the form of vouchers. And we have about 30 local authorities who do this on our platform now. So we have an entirely different size of the business. Yes. And then free school meals, not in term time, came back with a vengeance at the back of back end of 2020. And we picked up a lot of that business as well because we already had systems in place to do it. So we now have a huge vouchering business as part of what we do. It's, you know, it's run to tens of millions now. And we charge the supermarkets to take part. We've become profitable. We've now tripled the size of the team in the last six months. Way to go. Yeah. And, and also we used all of that downtime to revisit all of the issues of old, like the long sales cycles, rebuilt our platform, completely replaced our supply with a different type of delivered item. And I've had a huge amount of success from that. So we've come through it with an, a massive side of the business that didn't exist before. We've become profitable and cash generative, although we're trying to burn through that to grow higher as fast as we can. And we've really landed in a better position than we could possibly have imagined at the start of the coronavirus period. Yeah, to kind of to kind of round this all off, what do you believe? I mean, talking about resilience and I mean there's, there's so many business software companies and I can I can refer to business software right now because you are in, in that, you know, it's now B2C B2C play. What do you believe are the top two or three resilience traits that you need to like What do you need to have have in order to be a resilient person, I suppose, or a resilient business? Um, Yeah, not only kind of bounce back from adversity, but actually come out stronger. Come out stronger, yeah. So I think one of them is not being afraid to change your mind quickly and go after something quickly when you spot an opportunity. So when, so when one thing goes away, other things open up. And if you concentrate on the positive things that you can do rather than the negative things you can do, you will find new opportunities. So one thing is being able to spot opportunities and not being afraid to change things to go after them. That would be point number one. Point number two will be I got a really great piece of advice from one of our investors, I'd say it's Russell at Kindred. Russell sat in the early days after we'd taken Kindred's money, things started to go, like not everything goes right all the time. In fact, most days something's going wrong and it seems to be my job to just deal with those things rather than all the nice stuff. And one thing I realized early, we once had what, what I now look back on it, incredibly minor GDPR breach, really minor. But it happened on the first day of GDPR coming into place. And it related to something that a developer who didn't work for us anymore had done six months prior. We just happened to find it on that day. So it felt like the world had ended. And we, we did everything we should do. We self-reported to the ICO. I mean, it was tiny. Right now, it was, it was like a really minor thing. There was, there was never any evidence that anything had ever been breached, but we found what could have been a security hole and we plugged it and self-reported to the ICO and told all of our customers and did absolutely everything that you were supposed to do. And I told our lead investor who hadn't long since put their money in and I was expecting him to flip his lid and get really kind of irate about it. But 
he'd seen so many other problems of greater magnitude that it didn't really bother him. And in fact, he actually just praised, he praised me for telling him. He was surprised that I'd even told him what we'd done and the way we dealt with it and everything and documented it all. He was actually quite impressed by that. And I was really surprised at the time because I, I felt like really they should just, they, they would only be wanting me to tell them good news all of the time, except they're actually just expecting bad news most of the time. And the thing, the piece of advice he gave to me then, and this goes to resilience a lot, was nothing is ever as bad or as good as it first seems. Now, the second one of those is really important because every single shiny new partnership opportunity that looks like a game changer is never a game changer. So that second part is also important, but the first part is also true. Nothing is ever as bad as it first seems. That's true. And that was one thing that got us through last year. So opportunity spotting, being able to just get yourself like off the floor and realize that nothing is as bad as it seems. The third one is you can't do it without support network. And I have, you know, there are, there are people internally who I get that from, like the team. There are people externally that I get that from. And that's often, it can be investors like the time I've described, but often it's other founders yep. who are in the same boat because they've always been in the same boat. So that's absolutely crucial. And then the third one for me is an incredibly supportive wife who has, she has this special spade figuratively that she uses to just scrape me off the floor when the days have been that bad and kick me back up on the field, fed, watered with a smile on my face. And I don't, I really don't believe you can do it without that sort of holy trinity of people that you can that you can share it with. It's just not possible. Well, so it's a mixture of your support networks. Nothing is ever as bad or as good as it first seems. And being able to spot opportunities and not being afraid to change things to go after them. Wise advice. Thanks for this. This, this was super inspiring. I mean, I've been all ears and there's so much to learn from this. And so well, what, what is your big ask? What can, what can the audience do to help you? And to, yeah. Yeah, to help us. Well, where can they go? Where can they go? They can go to hug.me. That's H U G G G. We kept adding G's until we could trademark it. Dot me, M E, and use our product. We're starting to internationalize, but it's really a UK centric product at the moment. And there is almost no business that I could imagine that wouldn't use our, biz- our product in some way, shape, or form to send gifts to customers send gifts to prospects, send gifts to their staff. Gifts make people feel great and we make it really easy to do so. Fantastic. And how can they connect to you to say hi? They can, to, uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Paul Wickers, W-I-C-K-E-R-S. You can find me on LinkedIn or email me, paul at hug.me. I'm always happy to receive an email. If I don't reply to you, send it again. Pump it to the back of my top of my box again. I am not an inbox zero guy by any stretch. <laughs> <laughs> there's better there's better priorities to have indeed so thank you very much i love this and yeah, good luck for what's to come no problem and thanks for inviting me really it was uh, a pleasure really it. thank you very much nice to meet you and this ends my conversation with paul i hope you enjoyed it and if so please leave a review on itunes and if it inspired you 
please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Paul Wickers, founder and CEO of Hug.me. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.